Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let the Meat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Hey, lunatics. Today's episode is going to be a little different. We're going to pivot away from real food and explore the second topic, broken ecosystems. It's also going to be different in scale. Think about this. If you want to make small changes, change how you do things. If you want to make big changes, change how you see things. And today, friends, we're focused on seeing things differently. As I've promoted this episode to close friends and family, I've struggled to describe it. Just know this. There's this tension between conservation and agriculture that doesn't need to be there. Doesn't. Conservationists and regenerative farmers should really be best friends rather than arch enemies. And if you buy food from regenerative farmers, you shouldn't feel like you're doing the earth a disservice by feeding yourself. Because you're not. Since we all have to eat, why can't we support farmers who are healing the land rather than destroying it? We shouldn't conceive of agriculture and wilderness so differently. Because they really are just different ways of looking at the same piece of land. One feeds people and the other encourages recreation. There is room for each in our world. I'm arguing for a more inclusive, historically driven, and culturally appropriate definition of wilderness that should result in a healthier relationship between us and the land we love. I think a large part of our disconnect has to do with some very misguided ideas of what constitutes a wilderness. This really complicates the way a regenerative farmer like me relates to conservationists. If someone believes the only way to have a healthy ecosystem is a continued lack of human presence, how am I going to convince them my farm is better because of my continued presence? First, let me read Howard Zonister's legal definition of wilderness in the U.S. It provides a pretty nice foundation for our topic. A wilderness, in contrast with those areas where man and his own works dominate the landscape, is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. This sounds really good. It sounds unselfish. It sounds noble and disinterested. And even as I write this, 
part of it still rings true. I was part of the conservation community before I was part of the agriculture community. I've still been on more trails than I've ever been on pastures, and I've been on quite a few pastures. The summer before we made the jump to farming, my wife and I hiked part of the Colorado Trail from Denver to Copper Mountain. We walked 120 miles in 11 days. We understand the beauty of the backcountry, hiking all day without a soul in sight, bathing in mountain streams, and sleeping under the stars. We were visitors who did not remain. But in my time spent hiking, I came to realize there is nothing real about wilderness. There is no objective quality about a place that forces us to designate it as a wilderness. Wilderness is an invention of people, and, interestingly enough, white people. It's one way of looking at a piece of land. Before we get into that, we're going to dive into some etymology. So, Jeffrey, cue the dive, and let's go. The word wilderness was first used around 1280. It was a Middle English word that likely came from two Old English words meaning wild deer. It meant somewhere way out there. Just to give you some idea how long ago that is, Shakespeare was writing his plays in early modern English around 1600. We can't say with any certainty what was first being described as wilderness, but we can definitely say the first people describing it were white. Fast forward to 19th century America. Native Americans have been pushed from their ancestral homelands and hunting grounds. The word wilderness has taken on a whole new set of cultural and ecological assumptions. Listen to this quote from Luther Standing Bear, a Sioux Native American. We did not think of the great open plains as wild. Only to the white man was nature a wilderness, and only to him was the land infested with wild animals and savage people. To us, it was tame. Earth was bountiful, and we were surrounded by the blessings of the great mystery. Not until the hairy men from the east came, and with brutal frenzy heaped injustices upon us and the families we loved, was it wild. When the very animals of the forest began fleeing from his approach, then it was for us that the Wild West began. When I read that quote, the most interesting section is where he calls the wilderness tame. That blows my mind. Because if you read any outdoor publication from REI or Patagonia, no matter the diversity of people on the cover, the wilderness is always portrayed as unpredictable, mysterious, and dangerous. It's otherworldly. It's almost spiritual. Rightly understood then, the modern word wilderness, with all its cultural and ecological assumptions, is basically an act of forgetting. It's the second step in extinction. The first step of extinction is to erase, and that happened centuries ago. Think of the Dakota Wars. Think of the 30 braves hanged by a kangaroo court in the humid Minnesota summer. The second step is to forget. When we think of these lands as a wilderness, as a place that is mysterious and untouched, we are forgetting that there were people to whom they were not. These lands were not a wilderness. They were home. They were a place actively shaped by the humans that inhabited it. They do things like periodically burn it to increase grassland and wildlife numbers and plant vegetables in order to feed their families. 
They cut down trees to make shelters and hunted animals to feed their families. The Native Americans thought of the land as a tame and bountiful place. But colonists saw it as dangerous and mysterious. In wilderness, they wanted to see a contrast to their polite and cultured upbringing. So in a way, the wilderness is a giant Rorschach test. It reveals more about our deepest fears and assumptions than it does about reality. There's a picture of President Lyndon B. Johnson signing the Wilderness Act of 1964 into law. Surrounding him are his trusted group of advisors. Everyone in the photo is white. This is important only because it should be noted that a group of white men legally codified the definition of wilderness in the United States that day. The definition included the idea that, to the wilderness, man is a visitor who does not remain. I doubt they sought input from any Native American groups about their relationship to the land when they created this. But nonetheless, it now stands as law. Now, to anyone who's been wondering where this has been going, I'll show my full hand. This anti-human, ahistorical definition of wilderness really complicates having a healthy relationship with the land. And it complicates categorizing our farm. And it really puts undue shame on us as consumers, since, you know, farmers cut down trees and kill animals, and they should just let everything be. How do we know what kind of farming to support when any way humans touch the land is deemed as destructive? Ironically, my home state of Missouri now has more forest than at any other time in living memory. If you listen to the fear-mongering of environmental groups, you'd think that there was one little sapling left and someone was going to cut it down tomorrow. Native prairies used to cover most of Missouri, and the Native Americans, such as the Osage and the Illini, would periodically burn sections of forests. Burning the undercanopy encouraged new animal traffic which provided that crucial hoof action which allowed new grass and saplings to grow. One of the things that surprised me after I got into farming is learning that seeds do not germinate without disturbance. In other words, plants don't grow unless they have a reason to. A seed will lay dormant until it gets exposed to some combination of sunlight, air, and water. When millions of bison roamed across the Midwest, their hoof action would provide this disturbance. We simulate this disturbance with high-density rotational grazing. We graze an area very intensely for a day, or part of a day, and then move them on to a new area. The area that just got grazed gets rested for around 60 days before it gets grazed again. The reason the bison move so often was due to predator pressure from wolves. By moving them from pasture to pasture, we are also simulating this predator pressure. How is that destructive? It's healing. By rotationally grazing animals, we're building topsoil, enhancing hydrology, fixing nitrogen into the ground without artificial fertilizer, seeding perennial grasses back on a worn-out row crop land, and a host of other things. On our farm, our presence improves this land in ways that natural processes can no longer accomplish. I mean, our ancestors killed all the bison and wolves. We have to get creative. If you choose to support a farmer who practices regenerative agriculture, you should not feel shame. You should feel empowered. You are enabling somebody to heal the earth one pasture at a time. After all, humans have to eat. 
And unfortunately, planting a field full of soybeans each year doesn't improve the land. Eating tofu might solve a moral dilemma, but it does not solve an ecological one. Annuals have to be replanted every year, and they concentrate all their growth above ground rather than building an extensive root system, which means no topsoil gets built and no water gets retained. No healing. If we adopted a more inclusive, historically driven, and culturally appropriate definition of wilderness, our farms and national parks would thrive. They might even coexist. Imagine if our national parks rotationally pasture-cropped vegetables and sold them at the camp stores. Planting vegetables in national parks would probably be scoffed at by most conservationists right now. Don't ruin the beauty of a national park by planting food in it! How is that historically driven? It would only ruin the beauty of the parks if you're projecting a mysterious and untouched assumption onto it. Remember, our national parks used to be home for many people. They planted vegetables and harvested game. They were tame, bountiful, and blessed places. Right now, the only things to buy at a national park are the same things you would find at a gas station. Sugary, artificial, imitation food. Growing vegetables at our national parks would provide employees an escape from the service industry and allow them to participate in the most magical part of our national parks, the park itself. You could buy these vegetables and take them back to your family to grill them over an open fire at your campsites. Park rangers could lead visitors on a walk through the vegetable fields, giving samples and telling stories about the people who used to farm them. To wrap it all up, wilderness and agriculture don't have to be arch enemies. They should be best friends. They are two different ways of looking at the land. One way feeds people, and the other way encourages recreation. There is a place for each in our world. Both can be healing for the land and the people who journey there. Be careful about projecting your own desires onto the land, because there is nothing objective about wilderness. It's just your thinking that makes it so. Although we like to think of wilderness as mysterious and untouched, it would be better to think of it as tame, bountiful, and blessed. Right now, whether you're in the car, or at the gym, or wherever, come up with a new conception of wilderness. Try to imagine something that isn't mysterious, dangerous, or anti-human. I like to think of a wilderness as this old, beautiful house. Whether we inherited it, bought it, or are just visiting it doesn't matter. What's important with any old house is that you aren't the first to live there. There were many before you, and there will be many after you. And with any beautiful house, you want to keep it that way. And maybe add a few touches of your own. When I'm in a house like that, I want to leave it better than I found it. I want the people who live there next to think, man, this last guy really cared about the place. Support a farmer who touches the land in a way that's healing. Let them know that you won't be satisfied with farming that only benefits their bank account. Visit their farm. Ask them to tell you about how the land has improved under their care. Look across the road at other farms and notice the stark difference between that one and the one you're standing on. And once you see that difference, you should feel empowered. 
because you are helping heal the earth one pasture at a time. Oh, and visit a national park. They're definitely our greatest national treasure. Hey, Lunatics. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, follow me on Twitter at Missouri Austin or shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you live in the Missouri area and want to take the next step in radically protecting the health of you and your family, you can buy some of our pasture-raised food at my friend David's website, fedfromthefarm.com. That's F-E-D, fedfromthefarm.com. And use the offer code PDCST, like podcast without the vowels, for $10 off your next order. I am shamelessly promoting this, but since I manage this farm and personally take care of the animals, this is the only operation I can wholeheartedly endorse. We have buying clubs in Kansas City, Columbia, Jeff City, Washington, St. Charles, Chesterfield, and St. Louis that we drive to either once a week or once every two weeks. Don't be strangers. I want to hear from you. If you order food from fedfromthefarm.com, put a note in the comment section that you heard about us through this podcast. I'm attempting something revolutionary here. Due to my city delivery schedule, I would consistently get to meet my subscribers. I would love to swap stories, share laughs, and hear the story of what convinced you to become a lunatic. If I see you a few times, I'll probably even invite you to our farm. We do those tours free of charge. If you really enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous with the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in the spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Right now, I've managed to keep my entire budget for starting under 100 bucks. The music, cover art, and sound design have all been done by friends or relatives out of the goodness of their hearts. With your subscriptions and reviews, I can turn this podcast from a bi-weekly to a weekly podcast if I can start generating an income stream. But I'll need sponsors for that. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Rabin. Fact-checking was done by the daring David Boatwright. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Until next time, how's Saudi?